Hey, this is Bridget. If you haven't heard the rest of this podcast, go back and start with episode one. It'll make a lot more sense that way. Okay, before we wrap up the story, we want to take you back one more time to 2012. By that summer, Wisconsin's high-speed rail line is dead. The money has been sent to other states. And Wisconsin's contract with the Spanish train manufacturer, Talgo, is about to head to court. Last time we heard from former Republican Governor Tommy Thompson, the father of Wisconsin's high-speed rail plan, he was announcing that he would not run for U.S. Senate in 2010. He was passing the baton. But almost immediately, Thompson regrets not running. He thinks about it all the time. He gets another chance. In 2012, there's an opening for Wisconsin's other U.S. Senate seat. And that year, there would be no stopping him. After more than a decade out of state politics, Thompson is getting back in the game. And in May of 2012, he's making his triumphant return to the Wisconsin State Republican Convention. I'm a lifelong member of the GOP. I'm proud to help lead and develop this party. And now with everything that's at stake more than ever, isn't it great to be a Republican? One of Thompson's big selling points in his campaign is that he's done this. He's battle-tested. And he tells the crowd he'll win for them in November. But Thompson's next election is actually later that day. The activists in the room will decide whether to give him their official endorsement in the race for U.S. Senate. And Thompson is campaigning hard for their votes. We will make America a leader again, and we will stop apologizing for being Americans, ladies and gentlemen. And we will make America proud again. I want to thank you. God love you. God love the United States of America. Let's do it, ladies and gentlemen. This is our fight. We can do it. But Tommy Thompson's coronation is not a given. There are three other Republicans running for U.S. Senate, and they all want their party's nomination. And when the delegates from each county announce their votes, it's not looking good for Thompson. Thompson, zero. Tommy Thompson, zero. Thompson, zero. Tommy Thompson, zero. Thompson comes in third, and none of the candidates get enough votes to win the party's official endorsement. But the others are okay with that, because in 2012, they are not intimidated by the former governor. In fact, one of Thompson's Republican primary opponents, Eric Hovde, tells reporters Thompson's showing that day was sad. I like Tommy personally, but people don't want career politicians anymore. They want to move on. Thompson, the father of the high-speed train that never happened, will have his work cut out for him if he wants to win the Senate race. We've told you the story of Wisconsin's high-speed rail line that doesn't exist. We've told you where the money went and what happened to the trains. But there was more happening here. In a way, the trains were along for the ride. From Wisconsin Public Radio, I'm Bridget Bowden. And I'm Sean Johnson. This is Derailed. We started this whole podcast with Tommy Thompson because the Madison to Milwaukee rail line started with him. But for this episode, we need to introduce you to someone else, another Republican who was an even bigger deal than Tommy Thompson in the national conservative movement. His name? Paul Wyrick. And a confession here. We didn't know who Paul Wyrick was when we started our reporting. 
but it's hard to overstate his influence on the modern GOP. Because Paul Weyrich brought conservative factions together and mobilized them. Those people were not active in politics, and I served as sort of a coach to get them active in the political process. It might be hard to imagine now, but there was a time, as recently as the 1970s, when the religious right was not the political force that it is today. Paul Weyrick set out to change that, along with Reverend Jerry Falwell. During the 1980s, preachers, we have a threefold primary responsibility. Number one, get people saved. Number two, get them baptized. Number three, get them registered to vote. Weyrick even coined the term moral majority, and he started some influential groups too, like the Heritage Foundation. Located steps from the Capitol, Heritage has promoted conservative solutions for over four decades. And the American Legislative Exchange Council, otherwise known as ALEC. ALEC is limited government. ALEC is free markets. ALEC is federalism. And if that's not enough to convince you, consider the people who honored Paul Weyrick in a tribute video from 2008. Big-time conservatives, people like longtime columnist George Will. Well, the last 40 years of Washington politics is, in a sense, a series of footnotes to Paul Weyrick. And future Vice President Mike Pence. In a word, I want to be like Paul Weyrick when I grow up. So why are we telling you all this? Because this icon of conservative politics loved trains. In early 2008, he was on a national commission that was recommending wholesale changes to the nation's transportation system. And when that group spoke to Congress, Paul Weyrick used his time to push for more money for passenger rail. I know that you are deeply committed uh, to the cause of uh, transit, and uh, I look forward to working with you on uh, this project. Also on the commission, Wisconsin's Secretary of Transportation, the train-loving teamster and Democrat, Frank Busalaki. Busalaki remembers meeting Weirich at one of the commission's first get-togethers. As he describes it, everyone was introducing themselves when Weirich noticed Busalaki. And he pointed to me from, and he yelled at me across the room. And he says, Busalaki, you and I will never agree on anything because we are ideologically opposites. But Busalaki and Weirich have a couple things in common. For one, they're both from southeastern Wisconsin. Busalaki grew up in Milwaukee. Weirich is from Racine. And there was this other bond that they shared. Well, it turns out him and I became best friends because he was a trained guy. And guess who else Paul Weirich was friends with? So much that Weirich even called him one of his political heroes. You were friends with Paul Weirich, right? Very much so. Paul Weirich liked trains. He loved trains. He was on the Amtrak board with me. Former Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson. So we've told you all about how Weirich was setting the Republican agenda at the national level. And in the late 80s and 90s, Tommy Thompson was one of the most prominent governors. Sometimes he'd work hand-in-hand with Weirich's group ALEC to come up with business-friendly laws that other states would copy. So these two pillars of the GOP agreed on a lot, including trains. He loved them, I loved them, and uh, we teamed up together. So there was a, 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 a really a strong conservative uh, movement in the United States thinking it would be good 
to have alternative transportation services across the United States. And with Paul Weyrich, it wasn't just that he liked trains. He viewed them as a distinctly Republican issue. And here's why. Weyrich knew public transportation had a bad reputation among some Republicans. In a hearing before Congress, he suggested this was a relatively recent phenomenon that began in the 60s when the government started spending more on buses. Transit, after the Great Society, became a program that really was aimed at the transit dependent. And it became uh, thought of as a, a program for the poor and the elderly and so on. But Wyrick said there was a time when cities all over America had a different kind of public transportation, light rail, streetcars. And he pointed to commuter rail in some of America's biggest cities as a modern success story, like Chicago's Metro Train. Most of the people riding that uh, commuter rail system are Republicans. Most of them are business people. Most of them come into Chicago with their suits and uh, briefcases. Uh, it is a beautifully run system. Paul Weyrick said all this in early 2008, but less than a year later, he passed away. And one of America's most influential conservative voices was no longer there to push for passenger rail. Now, remember everything that was about to happen next. The election of Barack Obama, the recession, the stimulus. Democrats are the ones pushing for trains, and Paul Weyrick is no longer there to join them. And changes in the air. This is around the time of the Tea Party. People are angry with government. It's also around this time that a UW-Madison political scientist named Kathy Kramer sets out on a research project that will take her all over Wisconsin. She'd visit more than two dozen communities and ask people, what are you concerned about? What do you love about this place? Folks pointed me to gas stations and diners and sometimes um, folks who hang out after church service. And I would walk in and I would say, hi, I'm Kathy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Do you mind if I join you? Kramer thought she'd be learning all about people's views on issues like immigration and healthcare, typical political science stuff. But it became pretty clear about a year into the fieldwork that the folks in small town Wisconsin, there was sort of this theme across the state, regardless of where I was in the state, this sense of, you know, we, are, we just don't get our fair share in places like this. Even though she grew up in Wisconsin, Kramer says she didn't realize this feeling was so prevalent. But as she visited small towns, most of which leaned conservative, she realized this was something they'd felt for years. And around 2010, when Scott Walker came on the scene, these small town residents liked him. They liked him a lot. Kramer says what Walker was saying about the proposed high-speed train that year resonated. She remembers it in one debate in particular. So I can give you an example of what I'm talking about, and this is a direct quote. Uh, he said, if you look at what Jim Doyle and Tom Barrett, who was, you know, eventually Walker's Democratic opponent, have put on the table in spending $810 million on a high-speed train line between Milwaukee and Madison, 
with no assurance that it will go to Eau Claire or La Crosse or anywhere else. That's $10, That's $10 million, million dollars that doesn't that go, doesn't go to, you know, to fix um, you know, the, the road that goes up from West Salem uh, through the cutout up to uh, Black River Falls. It doesn't fix streets in La Crosse. It doesn't fix streets out in Coon Valley or anywhere else out in the, the Cooley region. That's money that's taken away I mean, away from I think what sticks out to me about that is just he paints you this picture of small-town rural Wisconsin, right? Like visually saying that money would go to Madison, Milwaukee, just those two places, and it wouldn't go to these other places in other parts of the state, right? He's so clearly aligning himself with people outside of Madison and Milwaukee. Kramer wrote a book about her research called The Politics of Resentment, and Walker is a big part of it. A lot of what he talked about and did during his first year in office spoke to voters in small-town Wisconsin who were angry with government and felt like they weren't getting their share. You could say that they exploited this sentiment, or you could say they heard this resentment and... um, and and listen to it, you know, and actually respond. So it just depends on where you're coming from, I think. Scott Walker would usher in a new kind of politics in Wisconsin. He was not a consensus builder. Even his most outspoken supporters would tell you that Walker was polarizing. And as Wisconsin politics got more and more combative, Wisconsin Republicans were with him in a big way. This built quickly. Walker had only been in office for a few months when he rolled back union rights, prompting massive protests. These protests and a subsequent attempt to recall Walker united Republicans. Even if they weren't behind him before, they were with him now. Their support was unwavering. And in 2012, this defined the Republican Party. This was the new world of politics that Tommy Thompson was walking into when he decided to run for U.S. Senate. A Wisconsin that was as divided as ever. That's after the break. So we said at the beginning of this episode that Tommy Thompson was running for U.S. Senate in 2012. You might be wondering, how did that happen? In 2011, longtime Wisconsin U.S. Senator Herb Cole announces his retirement, and Thompson sees an opening. He starts sending signals that he's getting into the race, hiring prominent fundraisers and campaign chairs. That September, he puts out an ad to help raise money. Tommy Thompson wasn't your typical governor. Blazing his own trail, his innovative ideas and conservative leadership made Wisconsin a model for the nation. But before Tommy Thompson is even officially a candidate, the new power brokers of the Republican Party are questioning his candidacy. Joining me now on the line is the former governor of the state of Wisconsin, Tommy Thompson. Good morning, Governor. How are you? Uh, good morning, Charlie. And how are you? Good. Well, Remember Charlie Sykes, by, uh, conservative talk radio's political kingmaker? He has Thompson on his show in September. By this time, Sykes knows there are conservatives in his audience who are uneasy with Thompson. He quotes from a newspaper article that references the former governor's mix of pragmatism, big tent republicanism, and government activism. A highly personal blend that is often enthralled but sometimes exacerbated the right and that might not be in sync with the current generation of conservatives. How do you respond to that? Charlie, very simply, 
I was the original conservative. Others are more blunt. The National Conservative Group Club for Growth releases an attack ad trying to undercut Thompson's campaign before it's even off the ground. Tommy Thompson has been a politician since way back in 1966. But do you know his record? As governor, Thompson supported massive tax and spending increases. The attacks don't phase Thompson. He gets in the race officially in December of 2011. But again, he's not alone. Here's Thompson biographer Doug Moe. He didn't think he was going to have a primary opponent, and he ended up with three. And some of them pretty well funded. Thompson would face Jeff Fitzgerald, the Speaker of the State Assembly who pushed through all of Scott Walker's agenda. Former Congressman Mark Newman, who ran against Walker in the 2010 primary for governor, and businessman Eric Hovde, whose campaign is run by a former Walker aide. This would not be like Thompson's elections for governor, which he won by landslides. To win the Republican primary, he'd need to play the game under the new rules. That meant a new take on some of his old positions, including the train. In January of 2012, Thompson is speaking to the Milwaukee Press Club. They open it up to audience questions. Somebody tells Thompson they know he's a rail buff. Would he have turned back the federal money for the train? No, I'm not going to criticize uh, Governor Walker. He made a decision, and I support him on that. I've said that before. Let that sink in. The father of the high-speed rail line between Madison and Milwaukee a lover of trains since his boyhood in Elroy, is standing with Walker. Thompson tells the crowd that day that the proposed train wasn't quite what he had in mind. It had too many stops between Madison and Milwaukee, he says, and that made it too slow. I would have changed high-speed trains into really being high-speed trains. I would have changed it and I would have stopped. I would just had immediately Milwaukee to Madison, no stops, make it high-speed and make it my train. To our knowledge, Tommy Thompson has never publicly criticized Scott Walker for stopping the train. To this day, that's something he says he won't do. Biographer Doug Moe says he thinks Thompson has never let his true feelings show. You know, he, I think he was devastated when, when Walker turned down that money. I mean, I think he, he did not think that was a good idea, you know, looking forward. If it bothers Thompson in 2012, he never reveals it. Thompson battles on through a bruising primary where his conservative credentials are questioned time and again by political newcomers. He wins, barely. Thompson gets just 34% of the vote. Eric Hovde finishes right behind him with 31%. Going into the general election, Thompson thinks he's a shoe-in, but the campaign slips away. It turns out this is Democratic Congresswoman Tammy Baldwin's moment. Baldwin saves her money during the bruising GOP primary, and when it's over, she attacks Thompson as someone who's lost touch. Her TV ads hammer home the refrain, he's not for you anymore. And in the end, Baldwin wins by about six percentage points. She'll be the nation's first openly gay U.S. senator. The people's voice was heard tonight, Wisconsin. And in his concession speech that night, Tommy Thompson is crushed. I certainly didn't need the job, and I guess I'm not, and I guess I'm not going to get it. <laughs> and I don't need anything more on my resume because I've already accomplished more than anybody from Elroy ever thought I could. <laughs> uh, 
Doug Moe, Thompson's biographer, says this defeat stung the former governor so much that they took a hiatus from working on his book. It's a topic he doesn't like to talk about. And when we sat down to talk to Thompson for this podcast, it wasn't at the top of our list, but we did ask him if running for Senate caused him to change what he was saying about the train. He said he didn't remember. But the Tommy Thompson of today sounds a lot more like the Tommy Thompson of 1999 when it comes to this train. He still thinks that his idea was a good one, that it could have worked. And he gets a little worked up over the argument today's conservatives use against trains, that they take too much government money to run. People say, well, you, why should the federal government subsidize rail? Well, you subsidize passengers on, in your cars by building the highways. You subsidize air travel by building that huge amounts of federal dollars go, goes into uh, subsidizing all the airports in, in America. So when you put it apples to apples, Every one of the modes of transportation are being subsidized. But even if he gets worked up over what the party says about trains, he realizes how Republicans got here. At some point, there just weren't prominent conservative voices pushing for trains anymore. I wasn't on Amtrak anymore pushing it. Uh, Paul Weirich uh, in the conservative movement had died and was not uh, the voice of, of reason out there with, uh, with conservatives. Uh, talk radio got involved and was opposed to it, and politics changed. The other thing we wanted to know from Thompson is a little harder to answer. How did politics change so quickly? Why are things so divided now? How did the idea of this train go from futuristic and forward-looking to boondoggle in just a decade? We asked Thompson about a half dozen versions of this question, and his normally booing voice gets softer and softer. He keeps telling us variations of the same answer. I'm not going to criticize anybody because I I was governor at a different time, and I I love trains and I love my vision of making Wisconsin stronger and better. And other people come in and have a different vision, and people vote for them, and and rightly so. And uh, and so they have to have have their day and. And the sun, and they have, and, and you can look back and say, what if? Well, what if? Yeah, but you have to look at what is, and what is is that time's changed. Derailed is reported and produced by me, Sean Johnson and Bridget Bowden. We're produced by Hannah Haynes and Brad Kohlberg. Edited by Noah Oshinsky. Music by Carl Christensen. Additional support from Adam Friedrich. Digital editing by Jenny Peek. You can subscribe to Derailed on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and other podcast apps. If you like the show, make sure to give us a good rating. It'll help more people find us. You can see more at wpr.org slash derailed.